Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. Today, on our second ever remotely recorded episode of the podcast, we will be hearing from the legendary Disney songwriter, Richard Sherman. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to check out any of our other content that's not featured, head over to nam.org library. And welcome back. Uh, this uh, episode, we are going to be... Uh, listening to and talking about the great Disney songwriter Richard Sherman, who, um, if you don't know his name, you definitely know his music. Uh, he is at part of every part of Disney that you could imagine. Um, and I had so much fun listening to his interview. Uh, he's just such a great, uh, brilliant songwriter and just so animated. And uh, it was just a joy to listen to and uh, excited for you guys all to listen to it as well. Uh, but just beginning, we're going to start listening to him uh, talk about how he got started and actually his father, who was a songwriter as well, and the influence that he had, uh, and then the start of the famed Sherman Brothers, uh, both him and Bob, uh, and what they uh, what they started to work on together. Well, I'm so glad that we could hang out. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. That's good. One of the things I thought might be fun to talk about is um, the art of songwriting and some highlights from your career, but maybe a good place to start is probably your, your first inspiration for songwriting, your father. Well, i say that that would be uh, very accurate. My father, Al Sherman, uh, came to this country back in the turn of the century, about 1909, and uh, learned the language. He was only a youngster. He was four, I think, three and he came to the country and uh, learned the language, and eventually his musical talent sort of forced him into performing as a musician. And he had a little band, and he play and he played a lot. And then he uh, started improvising for the silent picture stars. They they were called uh, mood music pianists, and uh, they want somebody to emote or to cry or something. They play in the background, and the director would say, "Okay, now cry emote." And so that that's the way. Or chasing, he'd do the chase music, and that was the kind of thing he started with. He cut his teeth on that, but he loved music. He loved songs, and he eventually he started writing uh, popular music, popular songs. They became very successful. He had some very big hits in the 20s and 30s and 40s. And uh, some of his biggest hits were, uh, you gotta be a football hero. You know, you gotta be a football hero to get along with the beautiful girls. That was his song. And Eddie Cantor had a big hit, and potatoes are cheaper, tomatoes are cheaper. Now's the time to fall in love. That was his song. Dad wrote a lot of big, big hits. In the 20s, he had, what do we do? Wanna do, do, doey day. That was his song. And uh, many, many, many other songs. He was a very prolific and but more than that, he was a great man. He was a wonderful man. And my brother Bob and I went to college. And when we got out of college, we both had graduated. And uh, he's the one that challenged us. He said, now you fellas have all this education. I bet you couldn't write a song together that some kid would give up his lunch money for. for. And we said, 
you're kidding. He says, no, because I, I was going to write the great American musical all by myself, and Bob was going to do the great American novel all by himself. And he says, you'll never, you know, and we were just digging a big hole in the ground. Not, nothing was happening for us. So he, t he sort of pushed us into being a, a team, and we found it was fun, and we found we could complement each other and uh, plus each other and give good suggestions to each other. So that clicked. And it didn't, we didn't have big hits right away, you know, but uh, we started writing and had some songs published. And then I had to go into the service. Bob had been in the service during the Second World War, and I was in the service during the Korean War. But when I got out of the service, uh, we got together again. And then good fortune smiled upon us. We had a big hit called Tall Paul, He's My All, a little girl named Annette Funicello. And Annette... Uh, was a, a star of the Mouseketeers show, the Walt Disney show. And uh, we didn't know this at the time, but Walt Disney was a great fan of Annette. He used to listen to all her songs. And so we were asked to write some more songs for Annette, for her recordings. And so we did a number of big hits for her, uh, Jojo the Dog-Faced Boy and the Pineapple Princess, which became a big hit for her, and a lot of album songs that we had written, creative songs for her albums. And... Uh, not to our knowledge, Walt Disney was listening to all these songs. He liked our songs. And so one day she was going to do a film at the studio, and it was called The Horse Masters. And he, he said to the head of the music department, ask the Sherman brothers, those two brothers, if they want to take a shot at writing a song for Annette for this movie. So we didn't know it was Annette. We didn't know it was Walt that was sent the request so, but the studio did, and we said, wow, sure, we'll try it. So we wrote a little song called Strummin' Song, and we wrote it for her to sing in this little picture called The Horse Masters. And uh, when we brought it to the, to the studio to play for this uh, administrator, he said, I like it, but Walt's got to hear it. He hears everything goes in. So we said, Walt who? He says, well, Walt Disney, of course. Who else? It's his studio. We didn't realize this, but we were going to have a meeting with Walt Disney himself. We were not prepared for that. But we said, well, shouldn't we get somebody to sing it? I mean, he likes to hear the raw material from the writer. So there I was sitting and singing and playing strumming song for him for the first time. And he liked it. And his comment was, yeah, that'll work. Now, listen, he, was, he had mistakenly talked about a different picture when we first sat down with him. So he said, why don't you take a shot at writing this other thing since, uh, uh, since I wasted all my time talking about the wrong picture. So... <laughs> It happened to be the parent trap. We didn't know at the time, but he asked us to write some songs for that. So we wrote uh, a song, brought it in. He liked it very much. He says that could be uh, used in the, in the love scene where they're singing about the scene. I need a title song, and we have a title called The Parent Trap. So we wrote a song called The Parent Trap, and we wrote another song for the two two sisters who were plotting together to sing called Let's Get Together, yay, 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 a little rock and roll song. And he liked that. But he never said anything like, I like it, or gee, that's great. He'd always say, yeah, that'll work. Now listen, try this. And he started testing us. And then he gave us more assignments. He kept, we kept coming to the studio. And we wrote, I think we had about six or seven songs accepted for productions. So once again, you are listening to Richard Sherman on the Music History Project. And he was just talking about how the Sherman brothers began and his father. And so far, a very interesting interview with what seems like a very interesting guy. You know, what's really amazing to me is how almost coincidental, but yet 
well-planned it was to get this interview for the NAM Oral History Program. I think this is a perfect time to give a shout out to Evelyn Lipson, one of the wonderful volunteers of the Museum of Making Music, which is located in the same headquarters building that the NAM Resource Center is, where we hang out. And um, her son, Jonathan, works with a guy named Howard Green in the uh, Disney Studios. And it was because of all of those connections that we were allowed to go and capture this interview. So um, in 2016, myself and our volunteer videographer, Suzanne Glassnap, uh, went to the uh, the building that you may have seen pictures of where the dwarves are holding up the pillars. It's fantastic. We felt like kings being able to go there. And, um, and what an amazing guy. Just absolutely. He was there with his wife. We got to have a little lunch with him. Uh, we went then to set up the camera in a small room, a meeting room, and... Um, they came over when they were ready and gave us some cookies to take home. I mean, it was just adorable and um, just a delightful couple. Um, and also a shout out there to Howard Green, uh, who um, apparently does not like to eat green vegetables. So Richard wrote him a song, Howard Green, who doesn't like greens. Um, and, you know, it's, we felt part of the family for that moment. And you can hear in his voice that he's such a welcoming person and, and humble. And it was really, really just an amazing opportunity. And I just wanted to share that and, and thank all those involved with making that possible. You know, one of my early passions in music has been following the careers of songwriters. It's just always been sort of part of what I enjoy most doing. You know, when I hear a song, yes, of course, you listen to the performer, but I always want to know, okay, who wrote that? Why did they write that? Where did that come from? And oftentimes, that's a fantastic story. Um, and so... I was very familiar with, with Al Sherman and his career. Um, Al was, um, was born in Russia and uh, moved to New York when he was a young kid. He was born in 1897. And um, in the early days of Tin Pan Alley, was right there at the right place at the right time and started writing these sort of catchy songs that were relevant of the day. And that's kind of a fun fact that he wrote songs that were specific to events or to specific to a program or a play that was going on, very, very similar to what his two sons would do when Walt Disney would ask him to do something. It was for a specific thing that was sort of already created. You know, here's this character, write him a song. And the dad did the exact same thing. Um, this is way too early for even me to remember, and that's saying a lot. But in 1927, there was a guy named Charles Lindbergh who flew across the ocean and made a big, big deal. And I think that when we look at video of that time, um, footage of that time, I should say, um, it was the world stopped. I mean, this guy got ticker tape parades, and, and it was a big, big deal. And... Uh, Al wrote a song called uh, Lindbergh, the, the Eagle of the USA. And, and from that song, people started calling him Lucky, Lup, Lucky, Lucky Lindbergh. And, you know, he just wrote something that was clever and was um, germane to the day. And I think that 
those early roots, we can start to see, ah, okay, maybe this is the formation of the, of the two brothers that would have their own careers as songwriters. Another thing I found very interesting about that was that um, he would often write some songs that um, were funny, you know, kind of clever, like uh, he wrote a song in the 30s called um, Do Do Dewey Day, you know, something, you know, uh, another one, Nine Little Miles from 1010 Tennessee, uh, you know, sort of, to me, bringing some humor, not unlike supercalifragilistic, you know, um, you know, some no nonsense and unconventional themes, I think, uh, kind of go back to dad, uh, which I find very, very fascinating. Um, anyway, in 1925, Al and his wife, who was actually a silent movie actress named Rose, uh, had a son named Robert, and then Richard, uh, who we interviewed, came around in 1928. And, um, just about when he was nine or ten years old, they settled in um, in Beverly Hills. Uh, the boys went to Beverly Hills High School, uh, where Richard started playing uh, the flute and piccolo and piano and really started honing his passion and love for music. And I think those early roots really kind of help us better understand that that wasn't too well covered in the interview, although a little bit about his dad, um, it certainly gives us a perspective as to how he was in the right place at the right time, just like his dad was. So with that, let's get back to this amazing interview. Uh, now we're going to talk a little bit about, uh, Richard's going to talk a little bit about uh, his time with Walt Disney. And one day he handed us a book. And the book was called Mary Poppins by Pamela Travers. And of course, he said, read this book and tell me what you think. He didn't say, I need a song for this or I need a title for this. He just said, read this book and tell me what you think. And of course, the rest is history. We thought a lot of the book. <laughs> we thought it could be a marvelous musical. And uh, we came up with a lot of good ideas, I think. He liked them. He said, yep, that'll work. And eventually, we played one song. I remember we played a song called Feed the Birds. And it was... We felt it was the theme of the whole movie because the father was being, in our story, the way we were telling it, was not paying attention to the children. They were becoming rowdy. And the, children, and the, and the mother was busy with a, co a cause. She, we made her a suffragette. So she was too busy. And Mary Poppins comes in and teaches life lessons to the family. And that was the, the whole idea. Well, he liked our ideas for the story. He liked our songs. And when I played Feed the Birds, he said, that's the whole story in a nutshell. I said, that's right, Walt, that's what it is. Well, at that time we were calling him Walt. We used to stumble and call him Mr. Disney. He says, no, don't call me that. Call me Walt. So finally we said, yes, Walt, that's what it's all about. He said, play me that bird lady thing again. So I played Feed, feed the Birds for him again. I said, how do you guys like to work here? He said, we'd love to work here. Are you kidding? So he says, well, I got a contract for you if you'd like to become our staff songwriters. So he made our career in that one statement because we became his official songwriters. And for close to a, a decade, we wrote most of all the songs that came out of the studio. And then subsequent to that, we've always been connected with the studio. We've continued over the years to write songs for the parks and for other projects that they've done. And uh, 
It's been a wonderful association. That's why we're here today at the Disney studio. That's fantastic. It's amazing. So musically, where was Walt? Was he a musician? No, Walt was not a musician, but he was extremely sensitive to music. He was very concerned with music. From the very, very beginning, he wanted music to be part and parcel of his packages. And when he did Steamboat Willie, the first time there was sound and thing, he insisted on having a score that fit the, the action, fit what was going on. And he was very, very careful about that. They, they used to call things, when you did that comedy stuff, Mickey Mousing the music. But that was because what they were doing was fitting the, the action to the music. And he was doing that first. He was, a, he was an innovator. He was incredible. The man had a, a mind that, uh, for imagination that be, was beyond anybody I've ever met. Incredible man. And he was very musical. He knew what he wanted. He was always selective. And he liked what we wrote. We read each other. I mean, he would describe a sequence or he'd give us a script and said, I think I need something in here. And next thing we know, we'd be know what to do. And sometimes we didn't like the title of a picture. We'd change the title and say, we think this could be a good title. It wound up being the title of the picture. We did that on a number of occasions. That's amazing. Absolutely. So a couple of stories I think would be wonderful if you wouldn't mind sharing. I understand A Spoonful of Sugar has a good story behind it. Well, A Spoonful of Sugar is, uh, we wanted to do a song originally that would teach the philosophy of Mary Poppins to the kids. And we wrote a pretty ballad, we thought it was a very beautiful ballad, called Through the Eyes of Love. How you look at things is, is the way the world really is. And we had reality can be all you want it to be. There's a silver shore, there are golden skies. You'll see your castles rise through the eyes of love. That was the concept. And it was very beautiful. And we played it for Walt. And he didn't say he didn't like it. He just, might work, might work. And when we played the score for Julie Andrews, because we wanted her to play the part of Mary Poppins, she said, that is not the right type of song for Mary Poppins. I want something with more snap and more excitement to, to do the, the philosophy. I think it's important to sing her philosophy. So we kept racking our brains as to how can we do this beautiful idea about through the eyes of love with fun and, and with a novelty song and how can we come up with it. So we said a slogan. We gotta come up with a slogan. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. That kind of a thing. A slogan. Stitch in time saves nine. Thinking and thinking. And one day Bob came in. My brother Brilliant Bob came in and he sat down. He said, got a title. So I said, what is it? A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. So I said, that's terrible. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Is it, it's great. It's so different. It's off the wall. It says it all without saying through the eyes of love. It doesn't say you have to. It's just a, a happy attitude makes a, a situation pleasant, palatable. And so actually that was the concept and I remember when we were talking about it we were uh, saying how can we handle this this title and everything originally he had makes the medicine go down because it had that kind of a makes medicine it had a feel to it and I said it sounds like it's forcing it how about helps so we said helps the medicine so we actually collaborated on that title but when it finally came down to it we said it has to come out of Mary Poppins how does she do it we realize Mary Poppins does what you don't expect. She slides up banisters, right? So what we're going to do, every time we say down in the song, we're going to go up with the melody. 
So medicine go down, the medicine go down, medicine go down. Mary Poppins, we knew we had it when we had that, and we were positive. We played it for Walt. Just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. He said, yeah, that'll work. <laughs> that was it. That was the, yeah. That's the story behind Spoonful of Sugar. Hmm. And what was it like collaborating with your brother? It was wonderful. Bob was brilliant. He was very good. He was a good editor for me. And uh, I was a good editor for him. We, we sort, of, sort, of, sort of helped each other. We could start a sentence and he'd finish it. I, he'd start a sentence, I'd finish the sentence. Uh, Musically, we, we actually, I was the music, musician of the two of us, but he would make suggestions to me and say, no, we've done something like that, let's try something else. So it was always kind of a collaboration. We kept it that way. We musically, music and lyrics by Richard and Robert Sherman. We kept it that way for 40 years. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, looking at the list, again, I wish we had five hours to talk about some of the stories behind these oh, songs. Oh, thank you. Every song has a story. Do you have a favorite? What's the story behind It's a Small World? Well, that was an assignment. Walt had this uh, uh, job. He was doing a uh, pavilion for, to salute the children of the world, UNICEF. And uh, it was a very beautiful idea. They had these audio, uh, audio animatronics dolls singing the national anthems of all the various countries. So when the boats go by, you'd hear the national anthems. <clears throat> On paper, that's a brilliant idea. In actual point of fact, is horrendous. It was a cacophony. You couldn't, after the first one or two uh, songs with, sung by these groups of children, you couldn't hear anything. It was a, it was one was blurring out the other. So we were called down to. It was all a mock-up on a soundstage with a, a walkway that was a serpentine uh, exhibit of, of the ride, but uh, no water and no boats, of course. And we were walking through it with Walt one day. He called us down to, to see this thing, and he, we heard it was terrible. He said, now shut the music off. So all you could hear was the clatter and click of the, of the audio-matronic dolls, all so beautifully costumed and everything. And he said, you guys are going to write me a little song for this thing. <laughs> it was an assignment. He said, I want you to write a simple little folk song that can be sung. So I said, Walt, how long is this, is this ride? He says, well, it's about eight minutes to go through. Said, you can't have just one tune. How about a, a counterpoint, two tunes that one could fit into the other, and it would be a contrapuntal situation. I said, that's what he called it a rondelay. He said, that's what I said, a rondelay. <laughs> He wouldn't say, that's a good idea, but he'd say, that's what I said, Arondelay. So we wrote, <clears throat> it's a world of laughter, a world of tears, and it's a small world after all. On the same cantus firmus, on the same creation, melodic lines, the same harmonic lines, it became palatable, because you could hear one, you could hear the other, you could hear them together and separately. And it was a very nice thing, and then we switched the, uh, the orchestration so they sounded a little more Far Eastern, they sounded a little more Russian, a little more British, whatever it might be as you were passing these, these countries. And that became a, what we thought was kind of a nice assignment, you know, and we finished it and played it for the Imagineers, these fellows that create these rides. Walt heard it first and listened to it, and he said, hmm. Yeah, that'll work. <laughs> and he said, let's play it for the boys. So he went down, played it for the Imagineers at, at the, uh, the place where they worked. Everybody was laughing and enjoying themselves. And uh, we, we thought we had, we'd solved the problem. I did not realize that would become, 
according to the New York Times, the number one most played song, the biggest earworm in the world, and the most played of all the songs because of the millions of performances over and over in all the parks all around the world. So we have a standard there. <laughs> I'll say. <laughs> Was there ever a song that Walt said he really liked more than it would just work? Walt felt very strongly about Feed the Birds. He felt that was his philosophy of life. And it was. And we had said it without saying, be kind to people, be loving, give something of yourself. It doesn't take much. We never said anything like it. We just said, feed the birds, tuppence a bag, two pennies to buy a bag of crumbs. But you got to do that. And I think, I think when we, we sang that form the first time, in the middle of the song is all around the cathedral, the saints and apostles look down. And, uh, and he, although you can't see it, you know they're smiling. Each time someone shows that he cares. I think that struck a chord with him. He knew that we were saying what he believed in all his life. He's always been giving. That's what he was doing. He never did it for himself. He did it for people. He loved people. And I think that means the most to me, that song and the fact that he loved it so much. So that was Richard Sherman talking about uh, his just fantastic uh, relationship with Disney and just some amazing stories of um, writing some of the classics that you know from Mary Poppins, um, which I, as a kid, watched that movie over and over and over and over again. Uh, I think I actually wore out the VHS. My, my mom was not a fan. <laughs> uh, but it was great to hear just the bond that the two of them had with uh, with Feed the Birds and how that really resonated with, uh, with Walt. Uh, and just great story also with the It's a Small World. Uh, and just thank goodness he, went, he jumped in and uh, we didn't have to listen to all of the different national anthems through that ride because I think people would have a bigger problem with that <laughs> than what they do now. Uh, so just amazing stories. Um, you know, it's hard to imagine what Disney would be like without, without the Sherman brothers. Definitely. So let's jump right back into this interview. We're going to hear Richard talking about some of the great songwriters that were his mentors, um, and then going into some of the first publishing companies that they worked with. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the, the art of songwriting and how that's changed, and maybe some of your experiences with music publishers. Well, you know, the art of music, songwriting, great songwriting, has been handed down through the years. You know, my initial uh, awareness of great songwriting was Gilbert and Sullivan. I loved that stuff. I didn't know why I loved it. It was so brilliant, so fun, and so singable, and yet so original. Special stuff. And I just fell in love with that. I was a kid, and I could, I could quote verbatim uh, huge amounts of, of Gilbert's genius and uh, Sullivan's genius. I just, it was wonderful for me. And uh, years later, when, when I got a little more aware of the world and everything, the, the, the genius of Larry Hart, Laurence Hart, and, and Richard Rogers, their, their lyrics, and, and Noel Coward, and his brilliant lyrics that he did, and his brilliant melodies, all these things were my teachers. They were my lessons. Then I learned about Cole Porter and his great talent, and Frank Lesser and his great talent, and Irving Berlin and his incredible simplicity that was so complex. I mean, he was a genius of geniuses because he, without any education, he, he said it all in the head of a pin. He was an amazing man. I think all these people were my teachers and my father 
who wrote beautiful songs and, and uh, encouraged me all the time. So I, I just, all my influences were the great songwriters. The, the, the wonderful songwriter, Rodgers and Hammerstein, his ability to tell story and create character with his words. I mean, the entire concept of words and music were very thrilling to me. Uh, songwriting has changed quite a lot. There aren't as many, I call them brilliant writers. There's some talented people out there. They're doing talented stuff, but it's not quite the caliber that it was at one time, I think. And the construction and craftsmanship has gone out the window. They all sound like folk songs now. Most of the songs today sound like the same song, like you're hearing the same rhythm pattern being sung by 10 different people. And uh, I'm not trying to say that's all bad stuff, because there's some very good stuff being written, some very good stuff. But the most important song that I've heard, songs that I've heard in the past 20 years came out of the Beatles, 20, 30 years. They were, the, they were the great songwriters. They're the ones. Billy Joel's great songwriter. Some of them, not too many great songwriters today. A lot of songwriters that write good songs. That's a good song. Great? No. No. Not in the old days. There were some great songs constantly. What was the first publishing company that you wrote for? Well, I didn't write for a publishing company. I just took my songs to little publishers. And in the beginning, it was in Hollywood. There were these little hole-in-the-wall publishers. They had some big ones, you know, the big names. And newcomers wouldn't necessarily get into those things. The established songwriters would. But So I, I my first publisher was a, a little publisher called Serenade Music. Sam Glickman was his name. And uh, he took our first song, a little country western song called Gold Can Buy Anything But Love. It was our very first published song. And Fred Glickman published it. He, he liked it. And uh, believe it or not, he got us a very big record. Our first major record was Gene Autry, the, the king of the western music. He sang Gold Can Buy Anything But Love. We were very proud of that. The song didn't last very long because it was about the time that General MacArthur was called back from from uh, Korea. He had gone over the 448th parallel, and President Truman got very furious about that because he said, don't cross the 48th, 48th parallel. And he did. And so uh, he was recalled, and he made a farewell speech in Congress. And he said, I close with these old barracks room ballads words that I knew as a young cadet at, at West Point. Old soldiers never die. They just fade away. Overnight, Gene Autry recorded Old Soldiers Never Die. Our song was taken off the record presses, never to be heard again. So <laughs> that's the music business for you. But we kept plugging away. Our next big successful song that came out, was not big success, but it was a successful song. It was called Things I Might Have Been. That was a recent music, I believe it was. And it wasn't until much later that Bob and I really connected with a publisher. And that publisher was the Walt Disney Company. So up until then, we were freelance. My brother started a, a record company, uh, a publishing house himself called Music World Corporation. And uh, it sounded big. It was small. <laughs> but it sounded big. And a lot of our songs, Tall Paul, for example, was published by Music World Corporation. And then when Disney decided they wanted to sing, uh, have Annette sing our song, they split the copyright with, with Music World Corporation. Uh, that was, you know, years ago. I'm talking about 60, <laughs> 60 years ago, 58, 9 years or something 
a long time ago. And so did Disney already have a publishing house? Yes, Walt Disney had a publishing house for about 10 years by the time we got there. Mm -hmm. uh, they were, before that, they were farming their wonderful songs out to uh, uh, other born music, things like that. And uh, they learned that's not the way to do it. They should do it themselves. And so they've eventually put together a publishing house. And a very nice guy named uh, Jimmy Johnson ran it. J Jimmy Johnson, James Johnson who uh, would, became our friend. He, he was the one that taught, took us into the fold. He's the one that called us that day and said, Disney, uh, the, the company wants you to take a shot at writing a song for Annette. And that was, you know, he was the guy that brought us that wonderful news. So uh, things seem to have a way of turning around and coming around. But that was our first major publishing experience. And they knew what they were doing. They knew how to do it, and they did it well. And. Uh, we had the pleasure when Poppins came out, it was like the number one hit. It was the biggest record for about five months on, on the charts and everything. It was an amazing thing, yeah. We beat the Beatles out. We were just on top of everything. It was amazing, that album. Boy, this is just such a fun reminder of what a great interview that was and what a wonderful guy Richard Sherman is. Uh, all taken from his uh, 2016 NAM oral history interview. I hope you guys are enjoying this half as much as we are. We're just sitting here with smiles on our faces. Uh, what a great experience. And that, uh, that last story about, uh, about the Sherman brothers knocking the Beatles off of the charts I thought was fantastic. That was back in 1965 when they won their two Oscars uh, that year. They, they won for Best Original Song, which was Chim Chim Cheri, and Best Original Score, which was for Mary Poppins. Pretty impressive, all in the same year. As we wrap up this, um, I don't know if you can tell, but I had a really great time listening to his interview uh, and just all the stories. A uh, big Disney fan myself, so it was great to hear kind of the background stories of some of the classic songs that we all know and love. Uh, and Going into this last little section, we're going to uh, listen to Richard talk about uh, just the importance of the words and songwriting it is to the lyrics and music. Uh, and he has this great phrase of wedding them together and how they can't be really anything without the other uh, and how important they both are together. Uh, and then he also goes into some of uh, his other works that he's done for Disney, uh, and does a great impersonation of Tigger, which I hope everyone enjoys, <laughs> and then talks about some of his current works uh, with the new Jungle Book movie and uh, some of the fun words he got to add in there uh, with the new songs. So hope you enjoy. Here is uh, Richard Sherman. One of the parts of um, songwriting that, that you and I have a great interest in is, is the lyrics and yes. how that speaks to people. And well, the intelligence of a song, the heart of the song has got to be the melody and the, the rhythm, the feel, the harmonics. But the intelligence of the song and the story has got to be, and the personality has got to be the words. And the words and the music have to feel like they're of wedded together. They don't feel like they're matched, but they're wedded together. So you can't think one without the other. There's a great story about um, Mrs. Kern was in a, a party, Jerome Kern's wife, the great composer. And somebody was saying, oh yes, Old Man River is one of Oscar's greatest songs. Uh, talking about Oscar Hammerstein, who wrote the words to Old Man River. And Mrs. Kern says, 
Mr. Hammerstein wrote Old Man River, but my, uh, no, Mr. Kern wrote dum dum da dum da dum dum da da. But my father, Mrs. No, but my husband wrote Old Man River. That Old Man River, he just keeps turning, rolling. You don't, don't. The whole concept of that song is the marvelous wedding of the two. But you can't separate them. And yet, the intelligence of the song, the intelligence story of the song, personality of the song has got to be the lyrics. Yeah, absolutely. And when you think about. Uh, Summertime, the song Wonderful Summertime, that was Ger Kern, uh, Gershwin. Gershwin wrote a great melody to Dubois Howard's Summertime and the living is easy, fish are jumping, and it's living is high, whatever it is. I mean, the, the words are so marvelous. Your daddy's rich and your ma's good looking. I mean, my God, that's, and the melody pulls you along on it. But if you, if, you, if you just heard a melody, da 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 and they're talking about sailing along on the beautiful river, it wouldn't mean anything. But summertime and the living is easy. That sets a picture, doesn't it? And that's what, that's what it's all about. Good wedding of the words and the music together. Never, ever sh short circuit the, the words. They're just vital to a song. Did it always occur to you that that marriage was together on the song? Oh uh, yeah, because I come from a songwriting dad. And he would say, you gotta get that, in those first eight bars, you gotta say it. <laughs> you gotta grab them. And uh, like a, a good headline for a newspaper. Without a good headline, you're not gonna read what the story's about. You know, stocks blast, or whatever the line is, they're gonna look at it to see what it is. And the same thing with the song. That opening line has to get you, the storyline has to pull at you. And we've always dug, my brother Bob and I, when, and when I write my, with myself, I dig for that little thing that makes me want to write it. Of course, everybody can write, I love you, I lost you, I need you, I want you. Everybody writes those songs. I mean, you can hear 50,000 of them a day. But nobody comes up with a song like, you are the wind beneath my wings. But once in a while, a great songwriter comes up with a song like that. That's a great song, one of the recent batch of songs that came up. I mean, the, both sides now, that's a great song. I've seen clouds on both sides. That says something. That, those are great songs. But there are not too many of them. Not today, there aren't. You know, what I didn't ask you about when we were talking about writing for the pictures and writing for assignments is writing for cartoon characters. Same thing. They're, they're, cartoon characters are real people to me. Winnie the Pooh is just as real as uh, Julie Andrews. I mean, I, I write for that character. And I don't think at all about whether it's animated or whether it's a live actor doing it. It's, it's not, not important. It's, it's the personality of the character. I remember we were working on the Winnie the Pooh stuff, and uh, there's a character that we didn't write in the first, first little short film we did. But the second film had a little character who was a stuffed tiger. His name was Tigger. And right as soon as I heard Tigger, I said, oh my god, i got to write that. That's, you know. It's, it's just uh, like it triggers something in you, and you just know. The wonderful thing about tiggers is tiggers are wonderful things. The tops are made out of rubber. The bottoms are made out of springs. I mean, it just, just said it, you know. Ah, yeah, that was tigger. And uh, that's what I mean, the, the, uh, the thoughts, the thoughts that come out and the melodies go with it. That's how it works. Just recently, I did some new lyrics, additional new lyrics for the Jungle Book, the new 
audio animatronic Jungle Book that, uh, what is it called, the CGI, a CGI version of Jungle Book, which is incredible and a giant hit. And uh, uh, John Favreau, the director, had me come in. He wanted to talk to me about writing some additional words for the, the, the ape, because the ape was no longer going to be a swinger. He was no longer going to be the Louis Prima voice. It was going to be a big, gigantic ape, the biggest ape that ever existed, which is called a gigantopithecus. That's a great word. And when I heard it, he said, this huge ape is a gigantopithecus. I said, can I use that in the song? He says, if you could, beautiful. <laughs> so, so I said, okay, great. So Christopher Walken uh, recorded it. And uh, it's, a, it's a fun lyric. It's additional to the, I want it, the, I'm the king of the swingers. He says, now you might think it's ridiculous that me, a gigantopithecus, would ever dream I'd like to team with the likes of you, man cub. But you know, that, that's, the, that's the lyrics. And it goes on and on and on. But I used gigantopithecus twice. And he loved it. He said, oh my God, that's great. So that's part of this big, huge hit picture now. And I'm very happy about that. But uh, my first love, of course, is doing the original Jungle Book. I thought that was such fun. And Walt was still with us then. He, he su supervised the whole picture. And it was a great joy to work with that great genius man. It was wonderful. Phil Harris and uh, Louis Prima both uh, sang, I want to be like you. You know, at the end, Lou, uh, Phil Harris comes in, the ape is trying to save Mowgli. And uh, the ape is uh, singing his song. And, and Phil Harris is the bear. He comes in, he's blue. So after a screening of uh, of the, the Jungle Book, it was it was overheard. I didn't hear it, but somebody referred to me that Phil said to Louis, "You know, this is going to make us immortalize us. This one, and of all the things that they've done, and they were both great superstars in their own right. The Jungle Book is the thing that the world remembers about Louis Prima and Phil Harris. And I'm very proud to have written that little piece with my brother Bob. That was wonderful. That's fantastic." This has been great. I'm such a, I'm so tickled that we had this opportunity, and I thought on camera we should uh, thank Howard Green for arranging this. Oh, my pal Howard, of course. He's the he's the best. He's a wonderful guy, and I enjoyed talking with you. Pleasure. Thank you. Th thank you. Okay, please tell us you guys had as much fun as we did. That was fantastic. We really appreciate you guys listening, and um, we sure hope that you'll uh, continue to listen. In a couple of weeks, we'll be back with another episode of the Music History Project podcast. Uh, for this one, we were trying to figure out what we were going to call it, and a suggestion was made by our volunteer, uh, Suzanne Glassnap, that perhaps the episode should be called Richard Sherman, the Tigger King. <laughs> Pausing for laughter. Okay. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library at nam.org.